clubhouse. Tis now the very witching time of night when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Are you intoxicated, Laszlo? Is he, John? Lingonberry schnapps and perhaps one or two glasses of champagne. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. Hi, I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode 203 of The Alienist Angel of Darkness. This episode was called Labyrinth. So I got another movie association with the show title. Oh, it's like two weeks in a row. Last week we had Harry Potter or something wicked. Yeah, I don't have Harry Potter this week, but I do have a, another fantasy movie, Labyrinth with David Bowie, which has a main character, Sarah, who is looking for her infant brother who's been abducted. That's probably not a coincidence. They had Sarah and a labyrinth of her mind, and we're definitely looking for babies. I think of Labyrinth, I think of not that movie, nor do I think of Pan's Labyrinth, which is another <laughs> Labyrinth movie. But I actually yeah. think of a little wooden game I had as a kid where you would put a metal ball in a corner and then <gasps> it had two like rotating axes. Oh, and you I had remember to, like, that. Game. You had to like tilt the ball through the maze, avoiding like the pitfalls. We are definitely children of the 80s here. So teleplay for this episode of Labyrinth for the Alienist was by Gina Gianfrido, and it is directed by Claire Kilner. So it's changed for this episode. It's always good for New Blood, and there was actually definitely a shift in how this episode worked from first two, and I think also kind of from how your typical Alienist episode works. There was a lot of questions raised and answers given, which I don't know if I was crazy about. This one was a little a little odd for me. It it didn't leave me with a, a good sense, I guess. Like I, I didn't I didn't have all my questions answered. I enjoyed the episode, but they bring up a lot of things here. And then I feel like they kind of like crossed them off. There was a couple things here where I was like, oh, that's going to be a good mystery. And then I felt as the hour closed, I was like, oh, well, I guess it's not really a mystery. Uh, also, a long episode. I felt this episode was really tense between the hypnosis, the involving of Libby, the nurse from the hospital, and Sarah herself lurking around the, the lying in hospitals. You know, there was also some humor. Did you find some humor? Laszlo is just kind of killing it this season. I mean, he's he's definitely got a sad sack side to him the unceremonious graveside burial of baby nap which was just sad it was just sad but i mean drunk laszlo i am here for that spinoff oh please i need more i need more of that if they want to give daniel his own spinoff where he recites classics drunk i am here for it i think you need some producer creds on that don't think i won't <laughs> This show always kills it when it comes to really ratcheting up those kinds of moments that make the hair stand up on your arm. Did you notice the music in this episode at all? The music was very much a force for me. I, I just kept noticing the music as like, why was I so tense? Why was I so on the edge of my seat? And it was the music. The music around the hypnosis scenes was just stellar really, because it, it created its own sense of character. You actually had in your notes a note about the music in the hypnosis scene. And literally next to the scene in my notes, I had music A plus here. I pick up on it more when the music is out of place. I, I think the music is always kind of underscoring all of the action and tension in the show. But that scene in particular really added to the entire ambiance and mood and, and feeling of dread 
that came with watching Isabel relive the this terrifying moment that she can't quite name. The music was terrifying. Sarah finally gives into hypnosis. She's kind of using herself as a test subject for Laszlo and his skills before she brings it to Isabel Linares. What was the deal with the blood on her hands? Let's just get right to the big question. Was that real, a real memory, or was that a metaphor for something? I think that was a real memory. From what she tells Libby later on in the episode, I think this might have been something that she suppressed. I don't think this was something that's part of her conscious mind. There's the sound of a gunshot in the scene, and then all of a sudden she has blood on her hands, and the bubble is popped for her, and she's breathing heavy. It's, It's not a good scene for her. I feel that was real. I don't think your mind can manifest something that's not real in a, in a subconscious hypnotic state. No psychologist, but I don't think it's possible to, to create a second narrative. Interesting. I guess I was thinking of the hypnosis more like a dream state, but it, it's not. Where your dreaming mind could definitely manifest one thing for another thing. But I guess hypnosis, if you're unlocking actual memories, that, that probably makes sense. I originally thought it was a metaphor when I watched it until the scene with Libby where they share their, their shared stories of suicidal fathers. And then mm-hmm. my mind kind of word back to, oh, so the blood on her hands was probably the memory of her father, like finding her father somehow related to that. Granted, that's conjecture, but that's an example of, a, I feel like, a question they kind of raised and yeah. then they kind of answered. I say red balloon. What do you say? Nena. 99 Luft balloons. Okay, that's one. And then what's the other thing you say? I, I agree with you. That's not where my mind went, but that's oh, definitely um, 99 Where your balloons. mind would go? It. Pennywise. You see a red, <laughs> in 2000, especially in 2020, if you see a red balloon, you think of Pennywise. And that's Absolutely. what I thought of here. That's what I thought of here. But 99 red balloons is a much, much better memory. Try and stick that one in when I inevitably have a nightmare. The other thing I wanted to mention here is the ticking of the clock combined with Laszlo's voice is so pervasive as to feel like it is sitting in the room with you, like someone there making that noise. She breaks out of the memory and she comes to after she sees the blood in her hands and Lazo has stopped talking and they've both stopped talking and the music kind of drops out and all that's left is like three or four ticks before the scene cuts away. There's like, it's just such an eerie sound because it is the representation of the absence of everything else. When you hear the ticking of a clock, it is such a mood setter because it means there is no other sound going on. Silence. And it always makes the mood seem heavy. And I'm sure five seconds feels like an eternity, but in a scene like that wrought with tension just at that moment. You just want to yell at the screen just so there's noise. Something to fill the void. I will tell you, though, that I was getting very, very hypnotic myself because Daniel Brohl's voice, the way that he changed the timbre of it for the hypnosis, it was like Andy Puttycomb from Headspace. It was very soothing. It was very easy to see how he could put you into a meditative state. So well done on his part. This is one of my favorite parts of the show is where the whole team is kind of gathered and they start breaking down the evidence and and working on the profile. They uncover a lot of evidence through this small piece of clothing. Did did you think they uncovered maybe too much evidence? I mean, I liked how they pieced it all together because they definitely worked as a team and they fed off of each other. They were building on each other's ideas. But I just found it hard to see how in 10 or 12 seconds that they got to the point where this was potentially a lady's fine skirt based on where the hemlines were or weren't. So it felt a little far-fetched for me, but I mean, they did deduce a lot from the fabric, from how it was stitched and things like that. Um, Laszlo thought it was a surgeon and Sarah corrects him, it could be a seamstress. I like the play between them, but I just found it hard to believe that they got that it was a lady's 
skirt that was fashioned into a baby's dress from hemlines. I agree. I, I think maybe it was a little too much deducing with what they were given. But that being said, I liked some of the conclusions that they came up with felt like they made sense. As a psychological profile, I kind of it kind of made sense. The aspiration to wealth, but not actually being wealthy. But more importantly, it was the idea of a mother or a woman who can't be a mother either was and lost their child or is unable to have children and so is jealous of women who do mother their children and combine with that grief, which we get to see the chalkboard really for the first time this season. And I love that fucking chalkboard. That was its own character last season, for sure. And it's already filled with a lot of information. Um, you know, Lazlo's big head is kind of blocking it, so you can't read everything <laughs> that's on it. They are already working on the chalkboard, but we get the grief in big letters, which has always been kind of a, a touchstone clue as something to focus on. I, I like figuring things out and I like guessing, but this show is so dense and has so many twists that I, I don't mind when the show kind of takes me by the hand and says, come on, Michael, come with us to this little journey here. And so we're going to point out grief to you so you can keep that in your brain as you're kind of going through and watching the episode. And it's a good visual cue so that this way the viewer can look at it and see grief. And then you start yourself picturing all the different things from around what they're saying, but it gives you a focal point, the nebulous concepts that they're talking about. I mean, they bring in Occam's razor here, you know, talking about the simplest answer being, you know, almost always true. If you've ever been in like a marketing session or some kind of brainstorming session, you know, people are coming up with like buzzwords and you're throwing it all up on the chalkboard. And then you kind of take a step back and see what you've kind of created. Uh, in the first season of The Alienist, that was kind of how they used the chalkboard. And one of the good things about it was it stayed. And so in an episode or two now, if they erased anything from the chalkboard, you saw them erase it. It was a very deliberate choice. And so to the extent we are going to be working in this room as their headquarters for the season, hopefully we'll be able to pause and stare at the, at the, stare at the chalkboard and kind of pick up the clues that they're working on. Last season was pretty good about letting us get glimpses of it every now and then and kind of refreshing ourselves. Laszlo says, like a cuckoo in the nest, cuckoos are brood parasites. That essentially means that they lay their eggs in other birds' nests, like secretly. Those birds are then fooled into raising the cuckoo babies as their own baby birds. The fuck? <laughs> they have the ability to make the eggs look like the real eggs in the nest. And then a cuckoo birds are real dicks. And so when they actually hatch, they have a habit of like pushing all the other baby birds out of the nest and killing them. I, I wish you could see my face right now. Like I have one eyebrow like way up in the air. <laughs> so when Laszlo makes the analogy of like a cuckoo in the nest, he says it really, really fast. This idea of raising other people's infants, the idea of, of stealing babies or planting babies with parents that they don't belong with. It all seems like it kind of relates into here. People go look back at this and be like, man, they knew what they were talking about there on that podcast. But if this is a mother who did lose a child and this is what they're you know, delving into, who can't have children or had a child and lost a child, this would be a very big break from reality to move on to being a killer of babies. Do you buy into this? I had a very hard time, my husband and I, conceiving our child. It took four years. I would definitely feel a certain sense of foreboding when certain times of the month would come. I would be very upset when I would see women with, you know, young children, especially. I never once thought of stealing a child. I never once thought of killing a child. Never once thought of usurping someone else's, you know, cuckoo as mine. Is this person a fully functioning member of society or what's, what's your take? I think any person who kills babies is not mentally healthy. Yeah, I'll agree. <laughs> so, 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 
off of the bat, you have to discount. Oh, uh, thanks that they for are... thinking that I'm mentally healthy. Then by you know by proxy, uh, I didn't say that. I just said the fact that you haven't killed a baby uh, means. I mean, that's kind of like a bright line test. You still may be mentally unhealthy. That I am not a I am not a clinical doctor to make that decision. But the fact that you <laughs> you don't go around killing babies is a good sign. A lot of the profile so far is not just the killing of the baby, but it's the attempting to poison the baby out of some kind of rage or jealousy or some unbridled grief, but then having regret about it and trying to reverse the process, but then going back and then smothering the baby. There's a part of there that we don't necessarily understand why. There are characters introduced so far in the show that maybe fill in some of those blanks. Maybe the idea that the child is maybe better off dead than being with the unfit parents or mother to which it's being born. I think they've certainly started laying out profile aspects here that lead us in a direction where you could see a woman mentally ill and super distraught being pushed there. I think episode three, we're still too early in the profile to really make that call. They've thrown a lot at the chalkboard. They're going to start weeding out what sticks and what makes sense as we sort of gather more clues through this episode. Sarah barges her way into this all-male club and catches John and his his hot-for-Sarah friend, Augie Gildersleeve. Did you think Augie was impressed or offended at Sarah's lack of having any fucks to give about the male patriarchy at the Harvard Club? I think he was completely intrigued by her lack of quote-unquote female propriety his first question to her is well like my aren't you direct that's something that's said to women that men don't get said to them it's infuriating however appropriate for the times even though it still happens today nonetheless infuriating but i think he was more intrigued by her and he is definitely along for the ride for sarah he's he's into her i had that he was a smitten kitten for sarah oh i said thirsty for sarah Just don't get your hopes up. I I cannot find any Gildersleeve as a real family at this time. Oh, I searched. I I searched too. I went to the list of the 400, which is always a handy dandy list whenever we're talking about New York society at this time. There's a great list called the 400, which uh, the Times published, I think, in 1892, which essentially tells you the top 400 biggest socialites in New York at that time. How uncomfortable did John look with the flirting between them? Not as uncomfortable as I thought he would be. There's a couple times where they're together and he kind of gives a side eye, but he keeps it much more under control than I would have thought. I didn't actually really mind John in this episode. This is a John Schuyler Moore that I can kind of get behind. He was a little more useful this time around. (laughs) He's got some relationship problems that... I, I can't empathize with, but I sympathize with, I, you know, he's definitely kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place here. Luke Evans does a really good job of conveying that in this episode. You know, big props to him for, you know, he ultimately has a really big breakthrough in this episode. So so we go from there, we go to the lying in the hospital where Sarah is soon to be arriving. We see Helen from last week, from that traumatic birth that closed out last episode. She's still trying to figure out what happened to her baby. Marco and the matron kind of pin her down and drug her, which is horrible. I'm curious what your take was on uh, the nurse who will know to become uh, the nurse who will know to become Libby in this episode. Her face is a little, a little implacable here, but I was curious if you thought she looked uncomfortable in this scene with what she was witnessing or if she was kind of on board with it. I'm reading her face to be that she is not okay with what she's hearing. You know, Dr. Marco gives Helen the bad news that her baby is with the angels now. The matron is holding Helen down because as she gets hysterical, she needs to be sedated. And I don't think Libby is okay with any of that. That's how I read her face, too. 
you know, I, I imagine if you say something to Marco or the matron, you probably lose your job soon thereafter. At least, you know, at 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 the best outcome is you lose your job. At worst, maybe something worse happens to you. These are like Scooby Doo villains, really. I mean, they're doing fucking horrible shit just out in the day. They are acting with impunity with these people, with these women, these these poor, poor, broken women that they are, uh, you know, been placed in charge of. I was shocked at how laissez-faire they were with, with covering their tracks. They're just like, yeah, you know, she's just bleeding out of her, you know, vagina, you know, into a bed. Yeah, that one's just taking a piss down on the bedpan. There's no cover being put here. It's it, This looks just like some kind of weird Orwellian nightmare, uh, and, and no one gives a fuck. They're just doing it right out in the open. It's it, it was terrifying. It sounds like you are pro Joint Commission, the regulatory agency that comes in and accredits hospitals. <laughs> I work in a hospital system, so uh, Joint Commission is the the fear dreaded monster that comes in every three years to accredit hospitals based on standards and things like that. Yeah, the standard of care was different back then. There there really wasn't a lot of privacy. Use how many women were in that one room where the the poor woman was hemorrhaging? Would you say six people in the room? Six women? At least, yeah. Yeah, something like that. So um, modicum of privacy and, and, you know, the needing of a bedpan with a curtain is just not there. So, yeah, they're definitely uh, adhering to a different standard of care than I think that we're used to. When Sarah shows up here for her tour and she she starts poking around, which, you know, I applaud her for doing that and I love her spunk. But also the kind of thing that makes me worry that she's going to get like a clunk on the head and wind up in one of these catatonic states that all of these women seem to be in. As someone, especially as someone who works in the hospital system, what was more troubling to you? The fact that all of these women seem so out of it, they seem almost like zombies? Or the fact that the matron refers to them as mummies? That's a disturbing word for an adult woman to use about other adult women. All the mommies need their sleep. Yes, it's very patronizing. It's very condescending. The part that was worrisome for me was that the mothers were all lined up against the wall feeding their babies as mothers would, but they're like catatonic. They're not speaking normally. This is a very happy thing. You've just had a baby. You're going to chat to the woman next to you. How many kids do you have? There's a communal sense among new moms that it's always a happy thing. You're always chatting. You're talking to your baby. It's a very intimate moment between a mother and a child to feed your child, especially when the baby's hours or days old. Like you've been waiting a long time to see this little face. You're going to talk to it. So the fact that they're so zombie-like, it brings me back to the point that Martha, the accusation that Martha brought up in the beginning of the season, the beginning of the first episode, where she said to Dr. Marco, I know what you're doing here, and I'm going to go to the police. I'm not okay with what I'm seeing. I'm going to hazard that there's some sort of experiment that's going on with these mothers, because I'm going to go back to the connection with the murder, mayhem, and motherhood lecture that Dr. Marco had the last time out. There's something very nefarious on going on here. And I, I don't know exactly what it is yet, but Marco is somewhere near the cog that's spinning this wheel. I think anytime you hear maternal research ward, you have to think, you know, experimentation. Here's the thing. Marco seems like the kind of doctor who is not evil for the sake of being evil. He is evil because he is convinced in the righteousness of his ass-backwards, misogynistic, 
women are only good for baby making kind of view of women. And so he's the kind of guy who is like cutting women's brains open to see if he could figure out where lustfulness comes from and, and be able to lobotomize these women against those kinds of thoughts. If the thing existed, he would probably hand out chemical castration pills to these women. He's that kind of guy to me. Very Mengele, like you're saying. There you go. Yeah, we, we get quicker than I thought we would. We get Sarah's confrontation with Dr. Marco. Were you surprised at how bold she was in this scene, dropping the, the fact that she knows about the sedative that's only available in poisons? And were you surprised at how bold his response was that we don't keep reports? We only hire girls that are unreliable. They're barely broken girls that we hire one step above the mothers that they're treating. He's as bold in we don't give a fuck here as she is in giving away all the kind of good evidence. It was in character for both of them, but I was shocked at how head to head that they were going. I mean, Marco's speech felt rehearsed. It was his elevator speech. This is what he says to people when he talks about the work that he does here. It was canned. So it didn't surprise me that he had this prepared and it was very, I think he sharpened it a little bit, aiming it at Sarah, but she was just going for broke saying, I know that the sedative came from here. He counters with saying that the facts are scarce. And basically he's saying that his people are unreliable. I mean, why is he dismissing his staff as a level above incompetent when he's got very impressive donors who are funding his hospital? He does not want to have it get out that he's basically employing former patients who are from this class of society that nobody wants and nobody wants to take care of except for him that he's doing some sort of god salvation work here on earth i'm i'm surprised at how uh, unabashed they were this was actually the kind of thing i think chrysler would have would have said i thought sarah would have had a little more tact than this knowing the misogyny and patriarchy she was going to be facing here maybe she thought she had to come out with a real big trump card to start the conversation maybe rocking back on his heels a little bit and maybe that was her thought process but i mean she is a bold person she does take big swings the fact that he said there's no report we don't do reports here kind of thing with a straight face and kind of just shrugs it off i took it as kind of just a level of disrespect for sarah i couldn't i i wouldn't believe he would try that with a, with a man who wasn't necessarily in his pocket if chrysler had shown up i don't think he gives the same kind of shrug and you know the, you know how these girls are they're unreliable we don't do reports i feel like he would have lied but i think he would have done it in a more convincing kind of way i don't think he takes sarah very seriously because uh, it just seems so laughable. Even the worst run place is going to have some kind of report. That that never seemed right to me. Yeah, I know no doctor ever in time in history that does not have a report, especially on a big incident, that would have happened with their patients. And I don't care if it's 1897 or if it's 2020, there's going to be something. If he's a reputable doctor, obviously he's going to have records. But even your worst villains always are meticulous record keepers because they like to know, they like to keep notes on everything that they've done so that they can prove upon their, their process. process of torture mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever their, their psychotic goals are. They're, they're among the best record keepers. Record keepers, yeah. And he was being so placated. He was just, you know, I'm at my wit's end about the, the fact that the baby was found after the execution. Just, oh, I just wanted to reach through the TV and just choke him for that. Sarah gets a little tour from the matron around the hospital. And this kind of just goes to the point again. If they're this bad at putting on a show of how well run this hospital is when Sarah mm. is here, how hard can these Scooby-Doo criminals really beat the catch when they're not being watched. 
you have the matron using her, you know, calling, you know, using the stupid, stupid, stupid girl line, which now is the second time I think we've heard her say that. But now that. she's eating it against her own staff. Ragtag and bobtails, you know, about the, about getting the medical reports and she would never give that. And just, yeah, you just, you see, you see these catatomic women being so mistreated and Sarah's just watching all of it. She, the matron doesn't even try and like shoo her away. Not really. Uh, it's just kind of shocking. I and mean, them, Sarah they- smells that the bullshit is nigh. She just looks like a tiger playing with her food as she's asking the questions of the matron. She knows that she's being lied to, but I think she was just kind of more horrified at the conditions and at the fact that they weren't doing anything about it. They were more inclined to yell at the staff than actually fix the problem. There's a big deal made that Colleen needs to go see Dr. Marco. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but Colleen is terrified about having to go see the doctor. Why would she be so terrified of going to see her boss? What the fuck are they doing here? I mean, to the point that Sarah, who is not involved in this conversation at all, says she doesn't want to go see him so badly. She should not be made to go see him so badly. And was Colleen the same person who served the tea in Marco's office? I thought she was. She might have been. Yeah. She might have been. I thought she was. She is quite a formidable woman in and of herself. Even if she is terrified to go see Marco, she's in the the process of delousing the patient. And when she's finally forced to go see Dr. Marco, she thwacks the scissors into the table. And the scissors are now standing upright, point and in the table. That takes some force. That takes some effort. That takes some strength. That's probably one of the few things that's covered in a lying in hospital training program. You know, how to use scissors as weapons. All of this allows us to get some alone time between Sarah and Libby. What's your first take on Libby in this scene here? Mainly, do you think she's telling the truth that she doesn't really know about what goes on in the maternal research wing? Were you surprised that as soon as the matron's out of the room, she spills the beans that Martha did stay in this room, but not on the night that Sarah's talking about? I do feel that Libby's telling the truth. I I think that she's got enough hatred in her stomach for these two that she's, she's another one with no fucks left to give. So when Sarah and Libby are talking, Sarah is so adept in this scene about getting Libby to help her that I'm not sure Libby was along for the ride, but I think she's just so entranced by Sarah's forcefulness, her, her lack of feminine propriety to bring that statement back that I, I think that she's compelled to out the problems that are going on here. But she's a little reluctant in the beginning. But I think it's the force of Sarah that really helps Libby along in her less fucks to give (laughs) of outing the lying in hospital. Building on her seeming uncomfortable with what's happening with Helen just the scene before. And then Sarah's persistence, but not in a I'm using you kind of way, but Sarah really comes off as someone that Libby can talk to. And I, and I think she, she takes to her uh, and the way Sarah presents herself. I think she ta- I think Libby takes to Sarah as someone that she can trust her secrets with. And, and it's not like she's spilling all of the tea, especially not immediately, but over the course of this episode, you see there, you see the trust building there. Plus I think she wants to talk, you know, so she's looking for someone to tell her secrets to about what the the fucked up things she's seen here. And I think Sarah kind of fills that void over the course of the episode. She really earns her trust. But before we go on, we have this quick little sad interlude that we already mentioned. Uh, Baby nap is late to rest at Potter's field. What what was your your feeling about this scene? I I felt that Laszlo was fulfilling a duty by seeing the baby to Potter's field to the grave. And then I just felt so heartbroken for him when he tossed the blanket in that Martha had given him to return to the baby when he promised to find her. I don't know. It was just a way for him to kind of give that 
section of the investigation a bit of closure. In his mind, I feel that, you know, him returning the baby to her mother was what he did promise, even though it it didn't have the outcome that they had wanted. It seemed like just a perfect expression of of Laszlo's grief. You know, there's that word again, the internal failure that he's feeling about being able to save her life and being able to save and find and save her baby's life. I feel like it's a uh, a bottom point for Laszlo in a lot of ways. Not that it's closure, but I feel like it's a rock bottom for him. Having to be the only person other than Stevie, because he drove him there, at this potter's field, throwing the clothing in onto the casket, and just, just seeing the little tiny coffin on top of the mother's coffin. The whole scene just seemed like a, a recipe for rock bottom sadness. But the good thing is, if you've hit rock bottom, the only place you can go is up. And maybe it's that kind of moment that it takes Chrysler to really fully get his head in the game. Because he's not really been full Chrysler yet this season. We ha- he-, he has not been completely on his game. There he has not flash- busted out yet, no. No, there were some flashes of it tonight. I am hoping that now that the baby's been laid to rest in a metaphorical way that he can kind of lay his guilt to rest a little bit. Or at least use it as motivation to go forward and, you know, and, and can convert that that grief into energy at finding, you know, baby Anna. I'm thinking it's going to be motivation to to move forward. So I thought it was too soon for closure, but I feel like it, it was a way for him to sort of change the the tone a little bit. Like he he closed out that chapter and he now he's moving up onward and upward to now find the baby's killer. The Isaacsons discover that there was breast milk in the baby's stomach along with poison and the charcoal the charcoal powder so i think we just need to put kind of a pin in breast milk as a hmm that's a curious thing to raise i will say that their isaacson centrifuge as they're examining the contents of the baby's stomach is amazing i used to work in a lab <laughs> let's get to sarah taking libby to lunch at la liberté restaurant this is where the trust really kind of starts to build to me libby comes off extremely strange but very, very likable. The The whole mix-up about the lunch was very endearing, and the fact that she admitted it was, I found, very endearing to her. But one, she mentions hot and cold douching as something that everyone should know about in like postpartum. <laughs> don't ask me. All right. Well, <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. I, I mean... I have not experienced that. <laughs> this seems like some real funky thing that a guy definitely came up with a hundred and, you know, something years ago, 120 years ago. I'm going to say it makes sense. You know, like if you have a sprain, you do some hot, you do some cold. I don't know. That area's been through some trauma. So, you know, maybe you need some hot, you need some cold. Maybe it's a little Katy Perry song here. Yeah, that was disturbing to hear. Just the image of it, you know. I, I See, that didn't even factor into my notes at all here. <laughs> oh, I, I right at the top of my notes, hot and cold douching, question mark, question mark, question mark. I think this is one of the big building moments of trust. Sarah shares about her father's suicide by gun or quote unquote accident by gun. And Libby, I think that gives Libby the freedom to talk about her father's accident by hanging. With a rope over a bridge, yeah. Yeah, what, what was your take on this moment between these two? I didn't get that Libby was strange. I just got that she was feeling very out of place. I felt like every woman in the restaurant kind of had their eyes on Libby as someone who obviously is a working class lady. Not that she's a working girl, but she's from the working class. And this was very much of a more upscale restaurant. So I think that she felt very out of place. And I think that she was feeling the eyes kind of on her. And she was very nervous about getting back to the hospital. She only had an hour for her lunch break. So Sarah having this moment to show her that she's human, maybe bringing her down in terms of her stature to Libby so that this way Libby could, you know, open up those gates of trust. 
there's now like this unspoken bond between them because of a shared trauma. There, there's a way that you can become a very trusted confidant when somebody has walked in your shoes. And that's that empathy card that Sarah plays very well, that she can read humans, she can read the humanity within the room and know how to make those connections. Sarah was very skilled in, in bringing Libby to her side. Sarah knew she had to be a little bit open here to, again, to build this bridge of trust because I think she probably rightly sensed in Libby not a lot of confidence, uh, confidants that she can turn to. She's She's a young woman who probably doesn't have a lot of good female mentor figures in her life. And so, you know, the kind of trauma that they share is an instant connection between them that will bind them and, and um, create an emotional connection between them. And, and emotional connections are really, really hard. You know, they can be formed fast, but they're very hard to break. So I think Sarah knew she had to have a little honesty here when when asked the question, especially so directly. Plus, I think Sarah kind of genuinely liked her. I think she realized she maybe made a faux pas by taking her to somewhere so nice and making her feel uncomfortable. And I think Sarah probably felt a little bit bad about that because for all of her affluence, I don't think Sarah is actually very hoity-toity. I think no, she's not just, at all. I think she's just someone who doesn't really think about it. it. It didn't occur to her that she was at a very nice restaurant for lunch until it was made clear to her she had brought Libby to a restaurant that was too nice to bring Libby to that would make her feel uncomfortable. I, I think she's strange, not because of her feeling uncomfortable. I think that was a side note that she felt out of place at the restaurant. There's just something about her. And maybe it's, again, just seeing the horror and trauma that she takes in at her job. There's just something kind of off about how accepting she is talking about these things that goes on around her. And maybe she needs to be desensitized in order to get through her workday. So, but there just seemed, there was a flatness to the outrage. She gives a really less than convincing statement that she doesn't think the matron would hurt a baby. But then as she kind of tries to support it, she sounds less and less convinced of her own statement because she remembers baby, baby Anna coming to the hospital. Were you surprised to learn that the matron had taken that baby on as a special project, kept her so close and kept all the other girls away from her? It didn't shock me that there was something creepy crawly about the matron and the fact that this was it. I was like, okay, so the fact that you, she kept the baby close and, and wouldn't let any of the, the common staff near the baby, that wouldn't be out of character for somebody like the matron. She's very power hungry, I get the feeling. And the fact that she kept baby Lenara so close is definitely something I feel that the matron would do. I do like the fact that Sarah said this outside the restaurant. I felt like it was a less imposing kind of an, an area so that this way Libby could feel a little bit more at ease. The fact that Libby was just so impressed with like the detective agency card that Sarah hands over is like a further, I don't want to use the word power play because you said it before, but I don't think it was intentional on Sarah's part. But No, it, I think it she is... sees her as a mentor. I think she sees, look at this woman who's not much older than me. How accomplished she is and things like that. So I feel like it was just another push along the, the emotional connection track that these two have now. The part where Libby says that she doesn't want to get anyone in trouble, even if I hate her, was for me like the high point of humor for this episode. <laughs> just how she, her face was reading when she said this to Sarah. But to me, it was actually more just a, a reminder of how young 
Libby is. And again, and underscores the thing that Marco says to Sarah earlier. You know, these are young girls barely a step above the mothers that they're taking care of. And in the scene, you really see how young she is because Sarah is not that much older than Libby. Yeah, I would uh, peg Libby as under 25 for sure. Sarah at, at most is 28, 29, 30, I think the way the show portrays her because mm-hmm. they treat her like an old spinster, but an old spinster in 1887 was like 30. Libby is that she hasn't had a baby yet, that she doesn't know what hot and cold douching is. When I say young woman, it's not necessarily an age difference between them, but it's a it's a maturity and life experience that Sarah possesses that Libby sees a mentor in. And mentors are important. Mentors are important for all young people. But certainly at this time, I think a, a, a female mentor is important for someone like Libby to see that not everyone, not every woman is like the matron. You have women like Sarah, who's accessible, who's not like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who is kind of inaccessible. And exalted. Right. Sarah is a real kind of salt of the earth person with her own business card. You know, she's kind of straddling. She's got a foot in both worlds. Uh, and I think Libby really latches onto that. Sarah goes to the matron's apartment. They have the conversation with the old woman about the fact that Marie, the matron finally has a name, Marie. And it's not E-H. It doesn't give me any clue to that. Damn it. Who knows? Everyone lies. Okay, house. <laughs> But we do learn that she cannot have babies of her own. Yeah, damn, like that neighbor spills the tea. And that she has taken babies home on occasion, but has had to give them back. Jaw drop. The actual words that came out of my mouth were, oh shit. Again, working in a hospital system for as long as I have, you don't bring the patients home. So the fact that she's bringing babies home and being forced to bring them back is just a very curious kind of a situation for me. It doesn't bode well for how this season is going to play out. I feel very much that she has a role to play in the disappearance of these babies. And it's under the guise of her work through the lying in hospital. So it would be sanctioned in a way. And it just did not give me a very good sense here whatsoever. Oh, I definitely think they're they're playing up the theme that she is very, very involved in the baby side of the baby napping ring. The profile that we had just seen uh, Laszlo and Sarah put together, I mean, this is the matron to a T. A woman who is surrounded by women having babies that she doesn't think are qualified for them when she cannot have a baby of her own. And they're all stupid, stupid, stupid. She is the fucking profile to a T, like a hard fit, like it, it, next to their profile that they were talking about with the grief and and, and the jealousy issues uh, that may be motivating this person. You would see a picture of the matron the way this neighbor describes her. Huge reveal. I did not get grief at all from the matron, though. That was not a, a, a feeling or an emotion that I was getting from her. Okay, but you're, you're taking grief as I sit in a corner and I cry. No, no, not, not grief. I don't feel that this woman plays a victim at all. I don't know that we necessarily certainly can say how she is channeling her inability to bear children. The way they were describing about their hypothetical person seemed to fit like a like a perfect puzzle piece to the woman that this neighbor is describing. And that this is a perfect segue to the fact that the next scene, Helen is kind of coming to, there's this purple dress floating in front of her, and it's the fucking matron trying on Helen's dress that Richard sent over to her to celebrate her coming back from the hospital. And she's wearing the dress that it doesn't fit her. She's like flouncing around. And she goes, oh, I hope you mind, dear, that I tried on your dress. Oh my God, she's the worst. She's horrible. That's where where I'm getting, there's no grief. There's no remorse in this person. This is the action of a person who is mentally unhinged. 
I don't think people who are mentally healthy do the things that she is doing in this scene, prancing around with the purple dress. I give Helen a lot of credit for being able to put together the words that, you know, I don't want a dress from Richard Osgood, who we met last week. I don't want a dress. I want my baby. <laughs> this is not a coincidence in the editing. We get, we get this information that there's a red flag next to the matron in her inability inability to conceive and yet she works in a in a maternity ward where a lot of fishy things are happening and then we see the scene of this unhinged woman doing an unhinged action and she also wields a lot of power within the lying in hospital so you know who knows what she's truly capable of there's not a lot of regulation there's not a lot of oversight in this hospital people are kind of doing whatever they want and she reacts when she feels like it, so it seems to me. Cut to the uh, another floor on the Langen Hospital. You know, I was impressed that Libby, you know, got the balls up or the stones up to go get the file. You can say balls. Women got balls. No big, no big brainer that there is a Martha Knapp file. Of course there is. Uh, what did you think of the scene overall? Oh, I 100% thought she was busted. So like what you said earlier that you thought Sarah was going to get a clunk on the head for kind of poking around the lying in hospital the way that she was. I thought for sure that Libby was going to be found out and something very nefarious was going to befall her. Big sigh of relief. <laughs> you know, it works out in her favor, importantly so, because she gets to eavesdrop on this great conversation between Burns and Marco. And guys, these guys don't hide it. Marco is so confident and secure in his position. They're having a conversation out in the hallway. That is a behind closed doors, after hours kind of a conversation. You think Marco would be more... Circumspect. Uh, uh, circumspect about revealing things because of the big donors. But I, my takeaway from this conversation is that the big donors know very well the kinds of things he's doing at this hospital and in use his services for it, like Richard Osgood, who I'm sure is a big donor. And so when he says my donors would object to any disclosure about this hospital, it's not that he's worried about the donors withdrawing their money from the hospital. They're, they're worried about being exposed as being participants in the services rendered by this hospital. Well, he doesn't want anything to get up because he's, whatever he's doing in the maternal research wing is something that he definitely feels is going to benefit his career, is going to benefit the hospital and ultimately benefit his donors. So that's one aspect that he definitely needs to keep an even keel on. So he doesn't need any untoward exposure from the people like Laszlo or like Sarah. He's running Burns as a, he says, you know, about the patronage with, with Burns. So he's using Burns as some sort of like security for Marco. That's the way I took it as. That we, we knew that from last week. It's a little more solid that he's got the Marco connection. I mean, he was at the, the lecture, but it's definitely more solid for me so that Burns is, is in a way like damage control in a way. My takeaway from when he comes into the back room, the green room at the end of the lecture last episode, kind of six him on and, and Burns says, you know, I'm on it. It really reminded me of the movie The Firm. Yes. There's a guy, it's a Wilford Brimley, plays this kind of role that Burns yes, is playing here. That's, kind and, of a, and they both like have a, the same kind of bushy mustache. <laughs> like, a, like a cleaner. Like a fixer. That's what I kind yeah. of... But yeah, right. I, Marco definitely needs to protect the operation he's doing because not only is he doing this maternal research, but he's also providing this service for the elite of New York, for the Helens of New York. But if he's got to protect things at all costs, he's flaunting all of these transgressions in front of people who are trying to expose him. So I'm just a little bit of at a loss as to his modus operandi. He knows what's at stake here, but he also is just such a megalomaniac ass that he thinks he's so untouchable within the walls of the lying in hospital. He doesn't have to hide anything. He, like yeah. you said, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to have a conversation. Is there a, any connection between you and the Linares baby? He doesn't need to have that conversation behind a closed door, not knowing that his employee is sitting on the other side of the door 
Right. And I loved, and they, I mean, I love that they gave you a shot of Libby's ears kind of perking up at the conversation turning to the Lenaris baby. Burns is having this information and dropping it on his employer. Uh, one tells me that Lucius definitely spoke, definitely spilled some beans about what he knew. And I, I kind of actually liked Burns in this scene. Uh, this is a indirect threat that he kind of shoots across, he shoots across Marco's bow. And Marco is kind of shocked by it. He he covers and he gives a kind of a weak denial of having of knowing anything about it. Burns is positive Marco has something to do with it, if not everything to do with it. And so he when he asks this question, I think it's definitely just a hey, Pally. Before you get any thoughts about taking me out, just think about what I know. So I actually kind of liked Burns doing that. One of the grown scenes of the show. Oh. We have to talk about Violet visiting John about their wedding. Can we just invite call list. her Vapid Violet? I just like that so much better. Can we do Mrs. Bam Bam? Oh. Just refer to the dog. But I, I had a I had a very distinct takeaway from this. But what was your feeling about how she approaches uh, Sarah and uh, telling John we'll 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 add her as a plus with a plus one? Well, surely she'll-, she'll have someone to bring. Oh my God, she was just. I don't know if she's reading the room. I don't know if she's reading that there's something between... I don't think she's that astute that she would catch on that there was anything prior to John and Sarah. But I just feel that she's in any way threatened by a female being that close to John. So that this way she would need to have a plus one to keep her femaleness at bay around John. I, I That's my takeaway. I just could not stand how condescending she was. I want to come see where you write your stories. You're a fucking reporter for the New York Times. You don't write stories. You write articles. You write about the news. You write about the tone of the day. I hard disagree with you. I think she is completely jealous of Sarah and John. She knows that they pal around together. She knows that she he's involved with the little triumvirate between him, Sarah, and, and Laszlo. That idea of the plus one was said as much out of being kind of a petty bitch about it as wanting to gauge his reaction to her saying clearly, obviously she'll take someone to the wedding. Uh, that was completely, she, she is vapid in life. It was a completely calculated move to gauge his reaction about it. Fair enough. I'm like the anti-female when it comes to this kind of stuff because I can give a shit about most of that stuff. So Chrysler Institute. I thought this was a very sweet scene with Polly and Laszlo and the close-up magic and the coin in his pocket. It showed me that even though he couldn't show emotion to Polly, so Polly runs up for a hug at the end of the session. For me, this which is... Laszlo does not reciprocate. No, Laszlo he doesn't. Stands, he, he doesn't. He stands there with his arms to the side. He does not hug him back, which I gave him credit for because you know it's, you have to be very careful about hugging small children that are not your own. The role that he plays, he's the doctor to the patient, so it's it's a fine line to blur. But obviously, the the boy has a lot of affection for him. This was a step in Laszlo's human journey towards a little bit of empathy that he has a fondness for the boy and it's purely innocent like there, there, there's obviously nothing behind it this is maybe where sarah's rubbing off on him a little bit that he does have this ability to break down the walls just a little bit like you see him after paulie leaves it breaks into this big ass smile on his face you know talks about how much he's you know how fond he is of the boy this was a good step for Lazlo for us to see we don't get a lot of chrysler institute stuff i, I feel like in season one at the beginning of the series, we got we got a couple of scenes with him at work with the children. It was nice to remind us that he just doesn't go around trying to solve horrific murders. You know, his day job is working with these kids. Without being spoiler, like there's a whole plot of the Chrysler Institute that plays into the book. So it was interesting to see them 
be here at the Chrysler Institute because they haven't mentioned any of that plot, that subplot from the book in the show yet. I'm curious to see if we're going to see more Chrysler Institute as the season goes on. While we knock him a lot for not being terribly empathetic, especially with adults, he has devoted his life to trying to make children's lives better, troubled children's lives better. But for me, the big, the big part here was that Sarah tells him about Libby and the matron, and he, you know, his eyes perk up at the news. But she doesn't tell him about the fact that the matron can't have a baby. And that seems like a really important piece of information, given the profile that they had come up with just a little while earlier. That was a very big part of their dissecting of the clues and the conclusion that they they drew to. She was more excited about telling him that she'd made inroads with Senora Linares for the hypnosis. I don't have a good answer as to why she left that major, major part out, seeing as how, like, if they're profiling the baby napper and the killer, that you now have a very viable person who fits that mold to a T. You know, as much as she loves Laszlo and values his opinion and and values him as a friend, you know, a, a recurring theme since this case has begun for her is that this is her case, that she is in charge of the detective side of it, that if she needs an alienist, she'll call Laszlo, right? That's what she says to Elizabeth. Yeah, so I don't know if Sarah was being territorial about the case or she just felt like she needed to prioritize uh, other things. So I guess the optimist in me wants to say that she just was prioritizing other information, but the cynic in me says that she's being a little territorial about the facts and keeping all of the information close to the vest until until she can uh, suss it out a bit more. So this hypnosis session I thought was a great scene. You get her talking about the dance class painting. Well, whatever she is recalling, she is terrified about. She ends up passing out and collapsing from it. So yeah, I didn't get anything clue-wise from this scene, but there are memories there to be retrieved. They just have to unlock the right formula to retrieve them. In the the second memory, it all becomes a little bit more clear. And mm-hmm. especially, especially when you think about what we talked about with her opening scenes, when she goes for a walk with the baby to the cafe and stuff, obviously it all becomes much more clear in the second hypnosis session. But this first one, I think just being a great scene, the great music cue, her terror, watching her faint, watching the faces of the other people watch the hypnosis, I think it was just all, was really fun to watch. And I think it was so well executed. We're cutting back to the Isaacsons now. Were you surprised that Lucius tells Marcus about giving the information to Burns about the Linares case? I wasn't because these two were so close. I didn't feel that Lucius could keep this from him. I do think that this is going to become more problematic than less problematic. Now that Marcus knows, there was one thing that he said about being ashamed that he didn't want Marcus to tell Sarah or Dr. Chrysler about it because he felt ashamed. It's now exposing Marcus to to Burns. I can see where, you know, maybe Marcus is in more danger now, maybe because he's going to act on this information. Maybe he confronts Burns. You know, he's the much more brash of the two brothers. I was more surprised that the show didn't play it out longer. Just last episode that it comes up. And uh, in this episode, it's kind of resolved. We already, we saw Burns using the information. So we kind of had a feeling that, that he had spilled the beans about it. And then he confesses it. That to me seems like it's going to foreclose Burns continuing to use him for more information. Just narratively, it seems like the kind of bridge that they can't cross back over again. I thought maybe we would see him having guilt with it for a while. It was such a dramatic moment from last episode to kind of resolve itself in this episode. 
I did think it was funny that when he talked about being ashamed, not that he was ashamed, that's not funny, but that he mentions, please don't tell Sarah and don't tell Dr. Kreisler. He does not mention John. And I that made me laugh because <laughs> no one gives a shit about what John thinks because who the fuck cares what John thinks? He values the opinion of Sarah and Dr. Kreisler. He doesn't really give two fucks about what John thinks. I thought that was funny. But speaking of John, look at the big brain on John. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this technique? of in your medical travels have you ever heard of this technique of painting your memories as a way of bringing them to the surface not so specifically to to hypnosis but there is art therapy and you know especially with with psych patients as a way to express themselves so art has a big play in healthcare i don't know if in 1897 that it had such a big place but i was very pleased that this was a suggestion because this was the vehicle that in knowing Senora Linares that they were going to get some mileage out of. There's a nice moment when they, uh, when Sarah goes to meet Cecilia Bow as a person to bring into this scenario to earn Isabel's trust and maybe get her to go along with it. It was more like Chekhov's painter. You know, we had Isabel name check Cecilia Bow to Laszlo, and now we're actually getting to meet the woman who was a real, as, as you pointed out in our last uh, history corner, uh, Cecilia Bow was a real painter at this time. I was super impressed at how detailed the painting came out i mean granted it looked like cecilia and isabel were both kind of working on it as she described it but that was a pretty fucking good painting of that cafe scene from her point of view when it was all said and done there was this shadow who was lurking in the tree line it looked like to me it was a woman from the outline of her dress and her hem as she was walking it was somebody with dark hair lurking in the shadows it looked like somebody who was pretty well put together from the three seconds that we got to see so there was definitely somebody who was watching her and she was tuned to it the memory that she suppressed came out in this this painting i don't know if the the person who she was referring to came out in the painting but it definitely was unlocked through the mechanism of the painting for me did you pick up on those clues for me, anyway, the new information was not that she was being watched. I very remember, I very clearly remember you and I talking about the fact that she was acting like she was being watched when she was kind of having like her trippy moment after the uh, veteran wakes her up and kind of freaks her out, and she she stumbles all the way back to the consul mansion. It was new information that she had in that she was able to come up with some kind of outline image of what that person looked like. And I was surprised that it was a woman because I feel like when you look at that scene, the way it was originally shown, it looked like there was a guy watching her that she sees, who we see, not someone in the shadows. So so that was new information. And that was kind of cool. Of course, fr terribly frustrating. She gets all the way to the precipice, but can't push it over the edge and get the final ID. I did think that the painting was pretty amazing and the detail that it ended up with because it looked like in the beginning that they were painting it together, but halfway through this hypnosis, it definitely looked like Isabel was, was painting that scene. I thought the guy from the newsstand was the one that was looking at her initially in the scenes. I, I think that's right. I just don't think the way they edited it, everyone was like a suspect in the scene, the way it was shown in that first episode. Here, when you see it in more context, where she's a little more controlled and experiencing it. And so the person that was watching her was not that guy. It was kind of a red herring for us. It was the shadow woman. But props to us for putting that together, that she like she was clearly depicting that she was being watched and was being uneasy about it. Yeah. A little surprised, too, that it was a woman because it's just not par for the course, I guess, for the time. But it doesn't give us any insight into where the baby is. And that was you know sort of the, the, the frustrating part, I guess. I'll say this because it kind of plays into a theory I have at the end of the episode. The woman in the silhouette seems too thin 
to be the matron. Not that the matron is a large woman, but she is of a, she is a hardier stock build than I think the shadow silhouette that we see here. And not to get not to jump too far ahead, not not built the same way as the woman we see in the final scene either. So there's I think at least two women here who we need to be keeping an eye on: the matron and some unknown woman. A question for a future episode is: Do you think Sarah is going to be able to recover anything from the old timey photographer taking pictures outside the tea house? Yeah, I do think she's going to find something because there was photography going on left, right, and center in the garden that day. She's going to find something. I like that she goes with Millie and is basically kind of showing her how to dissect a, a scene here. I liked it too. And I liked how Millie looked like she was paying attention, but also seemed kind of freaked out. Yeah, she felt like exposed. Like Millie was just like looking around like, I don't know about this. You can't learn if you don't do. Now, when when Chrysler says at the beginning of the episode that he was putting together the bachelor party for John, the only thing I could think of was, what in the actual fuck does a Laszlo Chrysler bachelor party look like? I thought it was going to be in a library with some tea. <laughs> oh, I expected there to be like dancing girls, but I expected them to be like some kind of reanimated corpse kind of thing. Something really macabre, like sexy. In, 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 in a, I'm sorry, a what point. is sexy about a corpse, Michael? No, no. Sexy from like a certain point of view, like, look, John, they're naked and, you know, they're dancing, but they're also kind of dead or dressed like mummies or something like, you know, something kind of really bizarre. Wait, mummies or, or, or mummies? Uh, both. Mummy right. mummies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like something like, you know, like for John, for your bachelor party, we're going to go on like a, a spelunking tour of the sewers of New York. You know, something like that. That seems like I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. My bachelorette party was actually to the San Gennaro Festival. <laughs> so. I mean, the San, San Gennaro Festival fucks. I mean, if you want, if you need a Zeppeli fix, absolutely, there is no, there is no better uh, festival in New York. I was running. Animal. Yeah, I was running tour guide because I had people in from out of country and the San Gennaro Festival was on. So I was like, all right, we're going to have a mixed bachelorette party. Let's go. So we ate. When people can gather in open spaces again, y'all should get to the San Gennaro Festival and eat Zeppelis and go try all of the fantastic Italian restaurants on Mulberry Street in Little Italy in New York. Hells yeah. What I did not expect was Laszlo to put together uh, one that John has so many, so many friends. Uh, there was a lot of guys there, it seemed like, but that he arranged for a belly dancer. Yeah, I wasn't expecting a Laszlo bachelor party to be so close to the mark of what a bachelor party is you know there's loads of drinking loads of scantily clad women and lots of men so you know kudos to lazlo for getting that right chrysler calls john out for being subdued and it was noticeable he was noticeably kind of down and not being as boisterous as you would imagine he would be at his own bachelor party what was your take on what's going on here in john's head why was he subdued because i think lazlo was dead on he was but what was your take on why i think he was realizing that he had to marry violet <laughs> I just don't get any sense of affection from him. Even the last episode when William Randolph Hearst and all of them were at dinner together, Hearst was throwing daggers at John's way. Violet was wiggling her fingers up John's shoulder and making sort of innuendo about riding a horse versus riding a bicycle. John had no public displays of affection for her. He didn't even look at her. He's not on board with this. I'm not sure if he's just doing it to save his his skin in terms of his fortune. His fortune seems to have evaporated and he is still very well connected as as we know from the clientele, the 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 gathered guests who are at the the bachelor party. He's, you know, friends with the Gildersleeves. So he still has these connections, but I feel like it gets very tenuous and I just don't think he's on board for the whole 
marriage with Violet. I think he needs the marriage, but I don't think he's on board with it. And I think that was slapping him in the face with all the alcohol. He's got real doubts about Violet. But we also know that he's also thinking about his grandmother, which I think this is the first kind of official confirmation that she has died. It's the plot from the book, is that she has passed away in the interim between the two novels and in between the two seasons. And when he says that my grandmother would have approved of me marrying be, Violet. Yeah, but I be think, thrilled with the union. Yeah, yeah. I think he's being, I think he's feeling sad about her as oil and vinegar as they could be. I think he genuinely loved her. Clearly he doesn't have a lot of family, if any family, or no family that he really talks to anyway. So she was like his last real blood love. I think John is the kind of person who has a lot of friends, but not a lot of close friends and not a lot of people that he can say that he loves. And so I think he's feeling a little down about that. Uh, you know, the woman he wants to be with is now maybe going out with his, his friend, Augie. Sarah is his lobster that he wants to hold claws with. Um <laughs> That's a good friends reference. <laughs> it's just not working out that way. But the but he does pick up a little bit when they go and booty call Sarah. Uh, how fun is it to see Laszlo Chrysler drunk on lingonberry schnapps and champagne? Oh, I it makes me want to go out and get some lingonberry schnapps just to be that adorable. He kind of like stumbles out of the carriage a little bit. He's quoting Hamlet in the middle of the street after it has to be after midnight. You know, in a sober Laszlo would have been able to recite it without hesitation or thought. He still gets it all out and he, and he quotes it correctly, but it takes him a little bit yeah, of effort. he's stumbling a little on it, but it's endearing and it, it's just, it's showing that he is human. Like I, I got, you know, a little bit more of the, the human elements of personality from him this episode. And this was one of them that he could let his guard down enough to be a little silly. In, as far as Laszlo can be silly, he's still quoting Shakespeare and Voltaire very eloquently. The fact that they picked her up for like the back nine of the night for me is just, it's just hilarious. Funny listening to Lazo describe it in his drunken, before he gets out of the carriage, he says, this will just be for John's closest friends. <laughs> you know, like, just like a real good drunk. No, Sarah, you're invited here. This is, this is for family, you know, and your family. Uh, I loved Sarah being kind of scandalized that Lazo was drunk. It was just, this was a playful scene that the show does a really good job with sprinkling throughout the episode where there's like a lot of tension and a lot of dread and, and some, some horror. And then it has these really good humor mo moments that reminds you it's okay to breathe a little bit and gives a little release valve. Yeah. So she brings back like, her, her notion of propriety going, are you intoxicated? Uh, yeah. I thought that was very cute. And you know, John dangles the carrot saying, Augie will be very disappointed if she's absent. But, and that's what gets her downstairs. That's the carrot. You know? Yep. That's the, the carrot and the stick there for her. All to the better that she gets in the carrot show because we find out some uh, two pieces of information. One, we find out Colleen Linderwedge, Colleen from the beginning of the episode who was terrified to go to Marco's office, was the last employee to check on Martha before the baby was kidnapped. So when you put that together with her being terrified at the beginning of the episode, poor Colleen is in trouble. I think Colleen may find her way into a wood chipper. I think one of the ways Marco stays in the business of what he is doing is by cleaning up his loose ends, especially now that Sarah has snooped around. Sarah has interacted with Colleen. The matron has seen that interaction. I am not optimistic that we get to see Colleen again. And... That they're sending Bitsy in as an employee. That's what they're going to be using Augie for, is to get Bitsy kind of as a mole. I got a very big sense of foreboding about this. Sending Bitsy into enemy, enemy territory with all of the uncomfortable sights that we witnessed. I mean, Bitsy's a hardy woman. She's not a Millie. She can definitely take what she's going into in stride. I'm fearful of the clunk on the head. 
for Bitsy. People at the lying in hospital tend to get worse and clunks in the head. Yeah, I don't. I don't want her to be Colleen Ledwidged. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am trepidatious at, uh, to the extreme for her safety here. I mean, of everyone that we've got sort of in play, Bitsy's probably the most competent. But it, there's just too many unknowns that leave me just going like, "Oh, Bitsy, man, like." Let's take out a big life insurance policy for you. Give Lucius a kiss before you go in. So the gang winds up at Montrose's Oyster Saloon. Let's just really quick highlight the things that we liked here. Uh, we learned Joanna's a law student. That's awesome. I love that. I love that that she's going on that journey, especially being a, a woman of color in 1897. She's doing that and that she wants to be a writer and that John is kind of volunteering the New York Times as a place that maybe she can come work. John's getting all the points for me tonight. There's some nice scenes where we're seeing Lucius get like trashed off his head because he's feeling so guilty and ashamed. We see Augie ask out Sarah and Sarah accept. I mean, maybe she feels like she has to since she is kind of, you know, getting him to do these things that may get him in trouble with Marco. Whatever her motivations, she says yes. But for me, the highlight of this was Chrysler being too drunk to give his formal toast and in fact having left his notes at the little Egypt place. I want to hear his whimsical thoughts on the nature of love, especially if he's drunk. That is an audiobook I will buy Laszlo yeah. Chrysler's drunk whimsies on the nature of love. And practical counsel of what it means to be united with another human. It's just so formal and just, I would love to have known what his notes said. So I love the little lingering gaze between Joanna and Marcus when she came to check on Lucius, who was spilling his drink all over the place. I really liked that. Um, I liked the fact that John was so present in this scene in terms of trying to find Joanna an opportunity. I found it also very endearing that Laszlo could quote Voltaire being pissed off his, you know, gourd, saying to John that only virtuous men alone possess friends. I think his speech about John was very heartfelt. And I, even though I would have loved to have seen the whimsical musings on the nature of love, I, I do like what he surmised of John, like what his summary was, was of him. And the fact that he said that I hope Violet sees him as they do and care for him as they do and love him as they do. For me, there was just a lot of back and forth with John looking at Sarah and Sarah looking at John and, and pointed lookings away. So the scene was both happy and sad for me at the same time. It was very bittersweet. I thought Laszlo really summed up what we're all feeling for John through lots of meaningful eye contact with Sarah, which I think just hammers home all of the more doubts that, that he's showing Laszlo, maybe because he was inebriated, gave voice to things that maybe he wouldn't have said out loud. No matter no matter how much he needles John about Violet and the yappy dogs and her being a shallow pool, I don't think he necessarily maybe would have said that she doesn't get you like we get you. She doesn't love you like we love you. That's essentially what he's saying here, but he's saying it in kind of a positive way. But I think the, the reading between the lines is he doesn't think she actually does all these things in Vino Veritas and in Lingen Schnapps Veritas. And uh, I think I think Laz is just in his feelings here. And he gives voice to a lot of worry that we all have about this union, especially when you add on the William Randolph Hearst of it all. But that nice, nice moment is ruined by this very disturbing scene of baby Anna, who we see apparently at the end of every episode crying. That's just kind of what baby Anna does. But a woman picks her up out of the crib, sits her down in the creepiest fucking room filled with these secret Cooper dolls and begins to nurse her. What the actual fuck 
Is this the breast milk? Is is this is, does this breast yes. milk match that yes. which was in the baby's stomach from yes. earlier in the episode? Question raised, question answered. This is what I'm talking about. In this episode, a little too much <laughs> of it. Uh, do you have any idea who this woman may be? I mean, I feel like they come really close to giving us some clues, but then pull it back. I think it's Colleen Ledwich. I do. I think it's her. She's dark haired. We see a shadow of her. When Isabel was being hypnotized, the shadow to me with the dark hair, the hair pulled back, the neatly tied back hair to me looked like Colleen Ledwidge. I don't know if I'm going too far on a limb here saying this. There's something off about her. And of anyone who's going to display some mental incompetence or mental defect in this episode, it was her with the, the flinging down of the scissors. We don't know why she's scared of Dr. Marco. We haven't give, gotten that far. But how she's been presented so far, she does not give me the sense that she is on an even keel. There's something off about her from what we see, how forceful she is with the patient. So she threatens to de-louse the, the patient by cutting off all her hair. I don't know, but I feel like this could be Colleen and those fucking dolls. And one of them has their eyes removed, like it's getting ready to be painted with the Mentamore painting. So- you just blew my fucking mind. I was so convinced Colleen was going to be bumped off as the final, as the last person to have seen Martha Knapp and the baby. I feel like she knows too much. I feel it didn't occur to me that she was being summoned to the office because she would have to go nurse a baby. If her milk has come in, she can continue to have breast milk long after her own baby maybe has, you know, outgrown it as long as someone is willing to take the stuff. And so, yeah, it never even occurred to me. And she definitely build wise fits the mold better than the matron. The matron to me is not quite of menopause age, but she is rapidly approaching it. So her... Right. I mean, Coll- Colleen makes a lot Colleen of sense. Is you know, prime time. That is fantastic. She is the one who maybe is snapping and doing something to the babies. Who knows? But you kind of just blew my mind. I really, really like that theory a lot. That's Ooh. why you have me on the show. You're you're the John Schuyler Moore of this podcast, Sheila. You're really bringing You know, that, that hurts. That hurts. <laughs> <laughs> you had a good episode. You yeah, good one episode. out of how many so far? What well, do, what do we have you have to be- this is eleven you, episodes so far? And I you get, better bring the you better bring the fucking goods for episode four. Check out the know. big brain on Sheila. Uh, I love it. So that brings us to the end of episode three, Labyrinth. But now we have a real quick history corner we want to give you. We have three entries today. So the first one was that Little Egypt was actually the stage name, but not for one. But Little Egypt was the stage name for at least three popular belly dancers from the late 1800s through the early 1900s. They had so many imitators, the name became uh, synonymous with belly dancing generally. Uh, Ferreira Mazar Spiropoulos was ostensibly the first one to use the name. But the woman I think that tonight is supposed to be based on is a woman named Ashia Wabe, uh, who came to fame when she was hired to dance for a bachelor party of a very upper crust society member in the late 1800s. I think it was 1895. Uh, anyway, it became famous because the New York City police raided that bachelor party. They had been leaked information that a woman would be dancing in the all together, which apparently is old timey work code for nude. And so they, with this tip in hand, the police raided this bachelor party and took her and booked her. And so she actually ended up becoming a little famous because of this incident. Teddy Roosevelt, who was still the commissioner of police at the time, totally approved of the raid, said that the police officers did the right thing by breaking up this moral turpitude. The painting that Senora Linares describes in the first hypnosis attempt, she describes as the dance class. It's by Edgar Degas, and it was painted in 1874. Sarah noted that it's 
in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is still in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art even today. Even within the painting, there is its own little history corner. A real bit of history exists within the painting. Jules Perrault, a famous ballet master, is actually conducting the class that the painting is the subject of. And the painting is considered to be from the Impressionalism era of art. How about you? What's your next entry into history? That was really interesting. I'm enjoying the kind of dive into art that they're using through Isabel. It's it's just a nice little facet. As always, I love the fact that they're using really historical people and paintings and they're kind of incorporating it into the show. It's just it's just a nice touch. It's it's the reason that I like doing things like this history corner. My last one is about the Harvard Club. So the scene where Sarah kind of barges in interrupts the men at fencing. Uh, that is the Harvard Club where they are. Um, which at the time was an all-male club. Uh, you, you could tell it's the Harvard Club because the people in the background are wearing the Crimson Harvard H sweaters. The Harvard Club of New York City was founded in 1865 by a small group of Harvard alumni interested in continuing the Fellowship of Cambridge. That's from their website. That's their propaganda. Within a year, there were 98 members who met at, I love this part, they met at Delmonico's restaurants and uh, other rented quarters, but they were regulars at Delmonico's. The actual club, the Harvard Club building that we see in this episode, actually opened in June 1894. It was furnished entirely with donations from members. It was actually thought pretty small. The original building was only 50 by 50 feet as a plot, and it was only three stories. It was on West 44th Street, where it still is today. The new clubhouse comprised a small grill room, reception, and offices on the first floor, a spacious library on the second, and two small card rooms and a billiard room on the third floor. Annual dinners were still held outside of the club at that point. Where we see John and Augie fencing, that actually seems to be in the Harvard Hall, which was not actually added to Harvard Club until the first major expansion was done in 1905. So I think the show took a little bit of license with uh, that big spacious room that they're in because the Harvard Hall is a feature of the Harvard Club today. It's 90 feet long, 36 feet wide, and it's three stories high. I'm pretty sure that's the room that they're you know fencing in at 1897 was not actually part of that building yet. In 1940, the ladies' entrance was added to the building to allow member spouses and graduates of Radcliffe College. That is basically the female college for Harvard when Harvard was an all-male school. So a ladies' entrance was added in 1940. It was a separate entrance. It had its own separate quarters in a club. It included a reception room, a lounge, and two dining areas. Women were not fully admitted as full members of the Harvard Club until 1973. What? At which time the ladies' entrance was finally removed. The Harvard Club was actually included in the first group of buildings designated as a New York City landmark in 1967. So it was an official landmark of New York City six years before women could actually go there. <laughs> and it was probably landmarked before, like, the Empire State Building? When landmarks were finally given out, there was a whole batch of them in kind of the first batch. I'm sure the Empire State Building Jeez. was probably one of the first yes. batch buildings. I was at a lunch for the Harvard Club years ago. Not that I went to Harvard, but through a old work thing. And it's a very impressive place. It's had several expansions. It takes up, like, two blocks now. There's a seven-story tower now on the building. But the actual core original building uh, still stands today. So. Well, aren't you fancy? All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks. Bye.
Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.